This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. Welcome back to another spectacular episode of Fans on the Run, the show that can, might, and probably will. Today's a big day, not just because who my guest is, but the fact that he is the first person from Swindon to appear on the show, which is a big deal in and of itself. But I digress. Uh, he he was one quarter slash one third, depending on the year, of the band that gave us such tunes as Making Plans for Nigel, Senses Working Overtime, Dear God, and The Mayor of Simpleton. That, be, that band being, in this house size, one of the greatest bands not named Beatles to ever twang. XTC. And without further ado, Lord Cornelius Plum himself, Dave Gregory. Dave, welcome to Fans on the Run. Oh, thank you, Ethan. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Uh, how are you doing? Doing okay, yeah. The sun is shining today here in Merry England. Which the the sun is often. shining in England. It is indeed, yes. For, for, well, about the second or third time this year. It's been a bit late arriving. But okay, so you you have like three or four days of sunlight left. I suppose we do, yeah. We're we're using up our ration yeah. as the hours go by. So I think I'm I'm just gonna jump right into it and talk about those four lads from Liverpool, the Beatles. How yeah. did you how did you first discover the Beatles? Well, they kind of discovered me and the rest of the people of my generation, rather than the other way around. There was Let no me escaping. rephrase my question. How did the Beatles <laughs> discover you? Okay. Well, I would have been, let me see, I just passed my 10th birthday, and uh, my head was already being filled with pop stuff. I think I was just recovering from uh, Telstar by the Tornadoes, which was a huge, massive hit in the summer of 62. And I think it was in the States as well, possibly yeah. Canada. Uh, huge record. And it uh, kind of, you know, that, that my ears were already tuned into what, what was going on in Britain at the time. Uh, the other band that I was really, really uh, totally taken up with, even though I didn't get to hear very much of them at the time because they were from the States, The Four Seasons and Sherry, uh, that single really turned me on. I mean, I, that, that just got my head into vocal harmony and those high falsetto vo vocals. I couldn't believe, you know, well, that a man I, could make a noise like that. I, so I, sometimes, two... I sometimes waver on the four seasons, but God, they must have been good for for training your ears for vocal harmonies. They, they, those records were so strong, you know? I mean, it was just such a powerful sound. And uh, the good, great, great melodies, all those early singles. Uh, I always look forward to hearing uh, that that shrill voice and, uh, and those great melodies. So that was kind of where my ears began to get really tuned into pop radio. And then one day, um, this little blues song came on by these this group called The Beatles. And again, it wasn't anything like as powerful or as engaging, immediately engaging as any as a Telstar or, or or the Four Seasons for that matter. But just the same, there was something about it had me listening. It was different, and it just sort of shuffled in. And uh, then it, it, the more I heard it, uh, the more I liked it, and I just thought, Who are these guys. And then you started reading about them in in the pop magazine. Did that song Mayhaps to... have a harmonica lead? That's right. The harmonica, that wet little wailing harmonica, great melody, acoustic guitars, and this rather laid back bluesy vocal thing. It, it wasn't like a forceful, it, it was really kind of subtle and different from anything else that was out there at the time. So that was where I think most of our curiosity was ignited as a, as a, as a nation of listeners. For the listeners out there who haven't clued in, the song we're talking about is Love Me Do. Love Me Do. I'm sorry. Yes, I should have made that clear. Love Me oh, Do. That's fine. And um, yeah, I think it only got to number 17 in the British charts. Didn't get very high, but the interest was there. And then, of course, when people started looking at these guys, they noticed that... You know, they had these long hair, long dark hair, 
they all looked pretty cool. They all they all dressed the same, and they were just they just kind of looked really interesting. Now then, um, Christmas came and went, and over the Christmas period in 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 the UK, we had the most horrendous winter imaginable. Nothing to you people in Canada; it's just been normal day at work for you guys but for england little old england yeah that much I, i'd snow ride dice, my snowmobile all the way to get here to this interview yeah and it's may isn't it i know so i'm complaining about the lack of sun and uh, you're already dealing with with uh, with snow or you're still dealing with it anyway that's that's basically we the, the whole nation was snowed in for like three two three months i think it was right through the first a couple of months of 1963. And then one day, we listening to the radio and the Beatles' new record came on. Again, the wailing harmonica came out of the snow and ice. I just remember this sort of, this siren call coming out of this dense weather that, we, you know, you'd look out of the window, the snow was still piled up against the back door. And then there was this harmonica, Just it was just like the sun was about to come out. Everything was about to change. And this was Please Please Me, which was the second single. And that went, I think, it shot up the charts very rapidly. It was irresistible, you know. And then all these photographs of the band started to appear and they were being interviewed. You could tell they were young, they were funny, they were really smart, you know. They could, they could run rings around most of the people interviewing them which most pop artists really struggled to do in those days. Um, so there was something definitely extra special about these four guys. And that song was irresistible. Everyone was singing it within days of hearing it for the first time. Everyone was singing that. Out of curiosity, because you, you're mentioning listening on the radio and the, the history of British pop radio, you know, there wasn't really much until Radio 1 came along and there was the pirate ships. Where were you listening to your music? We used to have a thing on, on the BBC on a Saturday morning. There would be children's favourites with Uncle Mac and uh, kids could write on a postcard and re request their favourite records to be played on this show. I think it was an hour, it might have been two hours on a Saturday morning. But that was that was the only real clue we had time to what was going on outside in terms of music and you'd get all kinds of stuff on that on that program it wouldn't just be the, the pop hits by any means you'd have novelty records you'd have popular classics i assume uh, a fair oh, bit of lonnie donegan yeah all of that yes uh, does your chewing gum lose its flavor and uh, my old man's a dustman they were big favorites and even uh, i think Occasionally, you'd get something really obscure. Like I remember Eric Clapton telling a story about how he'd heard a Big Bill Broomsy record on children's favourites, and that's what got him into the blues. That was the first time he'd heard a blues record. So that was it. That was your hour on a Saturday morning, and then it was followed by uh, a, a live radio show called Saturday Club, where they'd have artists and bands would go into the BBC studios and play live, and it would have to be live because it was a musicians' union rule. BBC only had so much what they called needle time, so they were only allowed to play so many records in a day, and the rest of the time had to be taken up with live performances. If it was going to be music, it had to be live to air, and that, those were the rules. And that was kind of what kind of stymied British radio at the time, because they weren't allowed to play that many records. There were no independent radio stations like there were in the states. It was all, all done by the BBC in London. So, the, the snow melts in 1963. Where does it go from there for you in terms well, of Beatledom? I just, you know, it was like, we need another record from these guys and what comes up from me to you. What a great song. I still love that now. And in fact, I've been less, because I knew I was going to be talking to you, I went back to a lot of the early stuff and had another listen. And it's still as exciting as it was when I first heard it. You know, I still get, I'm totally tuned into it. It's still, I still remember exactly why I loved it when I first heard it, because it still sends those shivers even now. And, um, why do you love it? 
well, I can't explain why it is. I just know that it happens. <laughs> and and uh, so so from me to you, and then there was, of course, we forget B-sides as well. Thank you, girl. They were just as, every, every bit as good. It's those voices, it was just the sound of the voices as much as anything. They were so rich and pure and strong. Again, going back to what I was saying about the Four Seasons, first and foremost the, the strength the power of the voice uh overtook everything else because i don't think they the beatles were that brilliant as technical players maybe apart from mccartney as a bass player i think he was exceptional and still is but uh the other guys were just sort of, you know strummers really and um but the, those voices and the way they were recorded and arranged uh, that was irresistible and on the on the B side of uh, from me to you, I mean, just a great little message, wasn't it? From us to you, from me to you, from John Lennon to you, listening. Uh, you can't say fairer than that, really. So, at what point during this do you decide to pick up a guitar? Oh no, it's, that, that would have been much much later. All right, let's. Let's... I would have uh, begged my parents every Christmas and birthday. I want a guitar. I want a guitar. No, you're not. Having you're not having a guitar. You'll have, you know, far too expensive. Don't forget, it's, we were still kind of post-war. Yeah. We weren't. It wasn't rationing or anything as bad as yeah. that. But it was still pretty grim in, in England, yeah. right through until they were only uh, just allowed to import strats. That's that's for sure. I didn't know about what a Strat was in those days. I knew it was that red guitar that Hank Marvin played. That was good enough. I think he, yes, it's well known now. Cliff Richard bought the first Stratocaster to England, and uh, it's still still around. I think Bruce Welsh is current custodian of it. They were a huge influence. Just the image again of the, of red guitars and those guys in their suits playing this twangy, reverb-drenched electric music that was really magical that really did turn me on so it was all happening in in britain at the time and i couldn't help but get involved with it i just emotionally you know I, even though i couldn't possibly physically participate in it much as i'd love to have done it just wasn't possible so it was all uh, happening uh, what were some of your other favorite groups at the time that you were listening uh, well, to all of the Merseybeat groups, uh, they were they were the Searchers, Jerry and the Pacemakers, all of those back from 63, Merseybeat ruled England. That was basically it. All the crooners, they were history. Billy J. Kramer. Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. Every All, all the bands, really, that Brian Epstein was in charge of. And even Scylla Black, you know, she, uh, she started to emerge with a song that Lennon and McCartney had written for, for her. Uh, towards the end of the year. But there was again something about the production and the sound of her voice at the time that just perfectly fit in with what was happening at the time. She was a female voice of Mersey Beat, even though she was doing more ballady stuff. Um, she was very much a part of that. There was, and, and uh, again, it all came, it was all centered around. Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson, Brian Epstein's management, yeah. and the whole EMI's, NEMS circle. The of... NEMS circle. That's right, exactly. Plus, let's not forget, most importantly, EMI Studios in St John's Wood, Abbey Road, and George Martin. Because I will always, I will always insist the Beatles were a five-piece group. Fifth member, very rarely credited, in the same way that. The musicians were well he's, he was the best musician of all of them yeah but he had the vision he had the knowledge he had the musical skill and he the had imagination. the mind of touch really really did and if you listen to all the stuff he did before he discovered the beatles there's something extraordinary about it's it, all his records are just perfect you know they're just perfect gems all the comedy stuff he did in the 50s with Peter Sellers and with Bernard Cribbins and uh, all those, and Charlie Drake. There's something perfect about every single one of them. Uh, again, discovered I discovered those much later as a result of, you know, finding the Beatles and going through all that. You know, you, it's just a natural progression to 
to investigate further, all of that stuff. But I've, I've over the over the years, listening more and more deeply as I've got to learn about recording techniques and arranging and studio production, all the rest of it, comes back to George Martin. He's the best of them. And he was so lucky to have the Beatles as, you know, a, a model to work with and as they were to have him in charge of what they were doing. I'm not saying they wouldn't have made it without him, but I don't think it would have happened in quite as, it wouldn't have been the phenomenon that it actually still continues to be. So far, you've mentioned listening to the Beatles on, you know, the brief little bits of Saturday morning radio. Uh, what was the first Beatle record you owned? The very first one was I Want to Hold Your Hand. Now, what happened was we, in, in, in at home, we didn't have a radiogram or, or a record player that would play vinyl records. My dad had an old-fashioned... Uh, it wasn't a wind-up gramophone, yeah. but it would only play Shellac 78s. And it was had a radio and it had a turntable, but it would only a play A grand 78s. old Victrola. That kind of thing. It was a piece of furniture, a big, heavy, expensive piece of furniture. But it did have a radio in it, and that was as... That was as OK. Then, towards... Uh, by the end of the of 63 something happened in his head and he decided to dig his hand in his pocket at last and buy a decent what was called a stereogram it was a, it was basically um, a, a radio with a, um, a stereo record player uh, in, in in the cabinet as well so we finally a stereo record stereo. player stereo oh yes oh yes. wow and this was 1963 don't forget so it was cutting edge and i'll always remember it because we we uh, we installed it in the lounge, plugged it all in. Let's see what we can find on the on the dial. Then that's when we were tuning in, and suddenly there was this uh, this news broadcast from from America that the president had been assassinated. It was just extraordinary. That was the first thing we heard on this brand new stereogram, and we just looked at each other in complete shock. What what, what do you mean he's been assassinated? Why why would anyone? choose to kill the president what what's going you know this was the start of everything going wrong in the world you know? i I, like... I have to say i am trying so hard right now not to make a joke about the ballad of peter pumpkinhead oh yes well that was a kind of there was a reference to 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 that event in that song it's not you know it doesn't tell the story by any means, but it, there is a certain Andy was being a bit, yeah, a bit obtuse, and and kind of making a point, you know, that uh, that good guys can get uh, can, can get horrible things can happen to to good people. Um, but anyway, there that's that's a starting point for for my uh, that then then a few weeks later it was Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? No, you're not having a guitar. Okay, we'll get you a record. <laughs> so I got a six and threw up me forty-five. That was my Christmas present. I want to hold your hand, and um, I still have it. Still plays perfectly, even though it was chucked in. That it was just you know what happens to records. But I, I was going to say, on. were you one of those people who took like good care of your records? No, I did not. I I mistreated them really. I I take very good care of them now things have changed because I really, really value the old vinyl. And I think the fact that um, the, the old, the original pressings from the from the early 60s, especially EMI and Decca, especially, are just indestructible. They're amazing. You have to keep them clean. If you can find a good cleaning method, they, they kind of play forever. And um, there's I just may or this may not amazing... be one of those people who's invested in a cleaning machine. Because I'm a dork, I you know. I don't care. have a cleaning machine. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I, you needn't. Um, it needn't cost a lot of money. I haven't got a cleaning machine. What I have is an old turntable that re that will revolve at seventy eight RPM, so it doesn't take as long as it otherwise might. And then I use a, a product called Mister Sheen, which is an anti-static cleaner that you can buy in the supermarket for a quid. You don't have to buy a very very expensive. Um, record cleaning machine and all the gubbins that goes with now it. Now you That's tell me. 
just takes a little bit of experimentation from time to time. Well, anyway, that's, well, you Brits, that's how I... You Brits got lucky because on the inner sleeves of all of your records, the record company is like desperately begging you to take care of your records. Like, yeah. Please use Emitex cleaners. It's like, and you know, DECA, EMI, they all had this. And the ones in America don't were forget, bas basically made of sandpaper. Yeah, the U.S. pressings were rubbish, weren't they? Yeah, not the Canadian, the Canadian ones. ones. No, Canadian ones are very good. Very, very good. Some of the best. Uh, very impressed with that. But, uh, you know, you get sort of Australian pressings and some from the Middle, from the Far East and the USA. They're the worst on the planet, I have to tell you. Um, but um, UK, Japan, Germany and Canada, tip top. But here first. We, we digress. <laughs> We're supposed to be talking. Hey, that's about... my line. <laughs> so yeah, that was to answer your question. My first forty-five was I want to hold your hand, and this boy, and they were played every single day for as long as I can remember. So, at what point did your your parents finally give in and say, "All right, fine, we'll buy you a guitar." Never. I had to pay for it myself. Uh, I had to wait until I was, um, well, I was 14. Um, that would have been in 1966. I turned 14 in 66. Just when um, things are starting to get freaky. Oh, man. They were just absolutely. I remember <laughs> on my birthday, a couple of weeks, a week or two after my birthday, I heard the Rolling Stones, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadow? And just thinking, this is it. This is just what I've been waiting for. <laughs> it was this amazing noise. Uh, and I listen to it now and I think, how did they think they were going to get away with it? But they did. And then they put out this promo film where they're all dressed in drag. And <laughs> they were my heroes. From that point on, I just thought this was just so outrageous. Um, but anyway, that was just a few. And then by the Christmas, I'd saved up enough money to put a deposit on a used guitar. Uh, and my parents did begrudgingly accompany me to the local music shop to sign the hire purchase agreement and act as guarantor because I had to pay it back from my paper out money. It's one pound, two shillings a month. So um, what make or model was was the guitar but it was a yeah it was a dutch guitar by made by egmond and it was uh branded as rossetti when they were imported uh, i think salmas were the importers uh and they they were branded as rossetti and it was called a rossetti three and it was kind of the shape of a fender jaguar it had three pickups and a tremolo arm mm -hmm. and I, that was it i just wanted as much gubbins on it as i could afford to buy uh, and it was, it was kind of, they, they're rare, you know, because years and years, I've, I spent years looking for another one because I, I parted with it a long, long time ago. And I eventually found one. And um, it's only about six or seven years ago, I found one on eBay, having searched and searched. Wait, and that, that fascinates me that it took you that long to find one. And mm. I know some of the other guitars you own, like you have a, I think a 65 Rickenbacker Rose Morris import model. 64, yeah. 64, even better. Yeah. It was the George Harrison. Well, it wasn't uh, yeah. the same as his because his was a 360 with all the deluxe appointments. With all the, but, the um, shark fin. With, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. The Roger Ross Meisel, all that German yeah. stuff on it. Which it's I got loved. the, we the weird F hole instead of the cat eye. Yes, that was all proper Rickenbacker stuff. And uh, I remember the, um, I, you, you need to check out, there's, an, there's a book just been written, you may know about it, I, I've... by the Kelly brothers, who are brilliant, and it's astonishing, the, the detail that's in there, amazing stuff, and some great, great pictures as well. But that's, a, that's um, it's called uh, Out of the Frying Pan, Into the Fire Glow. And you need to, anyone into Rickenbacker Guitars, please check it out and buy a copy. You won't regret it. It's fantastic. But Go anyway, buy it I'll now. Put... If you're listening, <laughs> dear authors, 
review copy. <laughs> well, but you I know, digress. Martin gave he gave me a copy, so it's the least I can do. Yeah, and um, yeah, and so there's a lot of detail in there. My guitar comes from the first twenty five that were sent to England in August of nineteen sixty four, and, and his uh, history I've, tells us, you know, Pete Townsend smashed the other twenty four. No, he didn't actually. I think he's he's smashed. It's it's been over. I think it's either six or eight. They weren't all twelve strings. So there were up three or four twelves, and the rest were regular six strings. But yes, he did uh, do a lot of damage. Uh, but they're all. I mean, Martin has found out the information. He's even got serial numbers of some of the ones that were broken. Wow, that's the level of that is detective impressive. work that he's done. Yeah, no, it's very, 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 very good research. So, but yes, back so, but to the Beatles. Was, uh, back to the Beatles. But I wouldn't have uh, had known what back a guitar was without the Beatles. You know, I, I flipped over "Can't Buy Me Love" when that came out, and there's this amazing, this new sound. I thought it was a keyboard, like a harpsichord or something. And yeah, a little intro. I couldn't figure out for the life of me what it was, but I knew I needed to find out. I wanted to know what that was. And of course, it was the famous three sixty twelve string. You you did eventually get one. Eventually got one, yes, but not before. I, first of all, I got a a nineteen seventy six three sixty twelve, a black yeah. one that I used for the English Settlement album. That's, that's the one you see in the promo film for uh, Senses Working Overtime. Yes, and it was used on the record and uh, it was used on a couple of tracks on Mama. And then in the summer of 1983, I found the um, the Rose Morris 1993 model, as it's known over here, used and very, very beaten up and looking sorry for itself. But uh, I was able to uh, fix it up and um, there it was, there was a the sound. Didn't have all the fancy stuff on it that George Harrison's guitar had, but it certainly has the sound. And that was near. That was as, that was good enough for me, and I still have it. I love it. I pull it out. I just like looking at it. You know, there's something about it that's that's pure because it's absolutely from the time. Uh, everything about Rickenbacker twelve-string guitars that you love is in that instrument. You just need to plug it into the right amp and find the right engineer to get it on tape. Yeah. Well, now that we're we're still on the subject of guitars, um, I, I view you as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. But you've also desecrated a piece of British music history with that there Gibson that belonged to Eddie Phillips. Yes, yes. Don't remind me because it makes I I could just cry. <laughs> I used it for years and years in its beaten up state. And uh, it was a case of either, because it was kind of, when I found it, it was so, so beaten up. I mean, I can't tell you. I was, I was on the point of, you know, just saying, no, I don't want this guitar. Till I plugged it in, the minute I plugged it in, I realised <laughs> it, it was electric, you know. It was just fun, the most fantastic, lively guitar I'd ever picked up at the time. This was 1978, of course. And um, I did. I, I think I did find uh, footage of you playing this guitar before its restoration. On I think uh, you were on top of the pops yeah. doing Nigel. That's right, and it's also in the Towers of London video. I'm playing it in that as well, but you don't really get a very good view of it or the scars on it and everything. Plus, I changed for whatever reason. I can't imagine why. Changed the pickups around, so you've got these big cream Dimasio surrounds on, which everyone was going for at the time. I don't know why I did that. Um, actually, I think I do know why I did them, because uh, there was so much damage to the original surrounds from just play wear, you know, to where the strings had gouged into the plastic. And, um, you know, he, <laughs> that guitar had done a hell of a lot of work and uh, been used and abused for years. But and I, it was always my intention to replace it with a better one, you know, to move it on when I could find a better one. But, of course, they just kept spiraling. The prices of vintage guitars at the time in the early 80s, they just spiralled out of my meat. I, I, I couldn't afford to 
couldn't afford to replace it. So after a few years, I thought, well, I, well, I can't afford to replace the guitar. Still a good instrument. I'll take it to Johnny Kincaid in Bristol and see if he can fix it up for me, which is basically what he did. It started out, the neck was really, had a headstock repair that was really untidy. And I wanted that to, um, I wanted him to fix that. So he did that. He refretted it, relacquered the neck. So had a, what looked like a brand new neck on this scruffy old beaten up body. And I took one look at it and said, Johnny, you know, you've done such a great job on the neck. Can you do the rest of the guitar, please? Because it just looks a bit odd. And so that's what he did. So I, I left it in this shop, came back a few weeks later and he'd, uh, he'd, he'd re respread. He did a great job. I had no idea that I was just uh, erasing, <laughs> you know, bit of the the British beat scene, just being uh, had, had just been scraped off this guitar. Anyway, that's uh, I have to live with that now. Um, well, the the guitar is still in my possession. So I know what it used to be. Now it's nineteen sixty seven. You have an elect you you have an electric guitar, and. You know, I think 1967, the greatest gear in pop music history, because everything was going on. Tomorrow, My White Bicycle, um, you know, Kites, Simon Dupree. Yes. See Emily play. See Emily play. Uh, Excerpt the... from a teenage opera. How about that? Uh, yes. There's a bit of magic. A little bit of uh, Keith West. Yes. I, but, you know, it's amazing. What I'm yeah. finding extraordinary, I don't know how old you are, Ethan. I, I, I'm 19. 90, see? And you're still tuned, you're, you're tuned into it. It's, ex it's exciting for you, even after 50-odd years of this music being around, <laughs> as it was for us when we were your age. Well, that's, and, uh, that's actually how I discovered you guys. I, uh -huh. I was a fan of British psychedelia first. You know, I was obsessed with all the, you know, old you know, pretty things and move singles. Yeah. And someone said, well, you know, XTC, they did a, a whole thing where they were pretending to be a, a psychedelic band. And I listened and I'm like, wow, this is really spot on. And I fell in love with you guys that way because it's like, Fantastic. oh, this, this reminds me of, uh, you know, Walk Upon the Water by The Move. Or this sounds yeah. like Rosalind by The Pretty Things. Well spotted. Good. You got most of the rep. Actually, there's, it's like, how many bands wrong with this record can you find? And that, that was that was our whole ethos. And it was just such fun. And John Leckie was totally into it as well. So um, we did uh, the 25 o'clock album in, in record a couple of weeks, I think, to record and mix. Just to prove, I yeah, have another copy. For the audio uh, listeners, which is all of you, I am holding <laughs> up a copy of 25 o'clock. And I have a copy of 25 O'Clock behind me. And, believe it or not, I have a third copy of 25 O'Clock framed in my studio downstairs. <laughs> you're, you, you're totally on it. That's I, all I can say, I, I'm, Ethan. I've turned on, I've tuned in, and I've yes. not quite dropped out yet. No, no don't drop out. No. That would be foolish. Uh, but, yeah... We 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 just had so much fun doing that because I think we were feeling a lot of pressure as XTC. We'd made two albums. We'd lost our drummer, um, and we'd made we'd had to, we'd been forced to sort of reevaluate what we were doing and try and keep in step with what was going on in in Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. Everyone was using synthesizers. A lot of dance music going on. All, and the new romantic thing, which we was kind of embarrassing. We didn't to do with that. And so uh, what were we going to do? You know, what were we going to do? Well, we made Mama and Big Express. They had some good songs on them. But production-wise, they were kind of... I, I wasn't comfortable with them personally. They're and very drum-machine-y. Yeah. However, um, I, I do I do enjoy those albums, and if yeah. I if I may share an observation I have about that period of time with you guys, it's to me with with Andy and his breakdown uh, during the English settlement tour, it's very in my eyes it's kind of like a 
what would have happened if XTC ended up like Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett kind of mm. just dropping out. And XTC kind of seems like if if Sid Barrett had gotten his shit together and mm. kept making albums. Yeah. Just yeah, I suppose so. Yes, I suppose there was you could yeah. There's but I, I but at least Andy once he was off the road and uh, and back in the safety of his familiar surroundings, he just carried on writing and making music. Of, and thank God he did, because, it, it, you know, we were able to continue as a band. We didn't get any help from the record company. That no. that all fell by the wayside. Virgin, uh, but if you're it's... listening to this, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> well, it's a different company now, you know. It's uh, all, uh... It doesn't matter. It's the spirit. Yes, exactly. And um, one, one last I think question. The Dukes of Strat- yeah, go on then. One last question about the Dukes. I could ask. Yeah. I could do a whole thing on the Dukes. I love the Dukes. Um, right. I I know you guys kind of got in the spirit, you know, lighting incense, putting on, you know, the psychedelic caftans and all that stuff. Were there any uh, substances uh, being taken Actually- to it? To achieve the uh, desired state, I don't think a single spliff was lit in the entire proceedings. Not even How a single jazz. In the time? Not even a single jazz cigarette. No, nothing. Because we were too busy. How do you think we'd have got all that work done in a fortnight if we'd been stoned out of our bonces? We, I mean, there was a lot of beer. There was quite a lot of booze. I was going to say uh, it, it would take someone. Uh, very stoned to uh, think, you know, this is a good idea. Borrowed Hammond organ. We're going to take it apart and plug directly into the Leslie. Well, that's that was kind of, that standard studio practice. Uh, uh, John Leckie had no, he was always doing that, putting guitars through the Leslie. That was really it. And, that, yeah. and then I think we wanted to put some vocals through. It, it's not a straightforward procedure. There's no. a method of plugging into the preamp at the back somehow. He he knew how to do it. But, of course, when Verdon Allen came back and found uh, found the back off his organ, his precious organ, it was a lovely instrument. I mean, really, considering how how it had been on the road with Mott the Hoople and was still in showroom condition, I don't know how he managed that. It was an amazing instrument. Was it like uh, a proper B3? It was a proper... Uh, it was a, yes, it was either a B3 or a C3, I can't remember, but it was the... The real thing. And, um, yeah, he wasn't at all happy about the fact that uh, he, he marched in and found the back uh, had been taken off and stuff had been plugged in, uh, even though John Leckie had done it, you know, hundreds of times before at Abbey Road. He knew what he was doing. So, anyway, uh, that that was the end of um, our our piece of, of that at organ. So while he was away getting his dad with his van, we had to knock out the um very quickly do the the, the, the organ part to what in the world uh before he got back. That's my That's favorite kind of track it. on the album. It's a great track. I love it. So Anything dark. with, you know, the backwards tape loops and just speeding up and slowing down. And then the drums just bottom out and yes. you're left with you know, just a cacophony of sounds. Yes. I, I'm going to try and do it's a segue be... with surgical precision here. Um, XTC didn't really do a lot of cover songs. I, I can only think of All Along the Watchtower. And I think that was before your time, even. This was yeah, still was. Barry Andrews' days. Yeah. If you and XTC in the 80s were to cover a Beatles song, which song would you have liked to have tackled as XTC? I think we would all have disagreed about... Um, actually, Andy and I did tackle did. Strawberry Fields Forever. Colin's uh, Hermits. Uh, Colin's Hermits, that's right, yes. Uh, we. Um, well, I'd done this... I mean, it was just part of my experiments with home recording, really. It was all done on a four-track I- I had I have to mention this. Uh, you and I have that in common. In my in my free time, I do tend to, uh, you know, see if I can re-record 
uh, songs I like as closely as I can. And I know you do that as well, because I have two albums on my computer of your recreations. Ah. Uh, and yeah, well, you, you, you do a pretty things... good My White Bicycle. Well, those were very, very primitive. They're really, I don't know what sort of quality they are from, uh, you know, if you've got them off the web, I mean, that makes it even worse. But uh, yeah, they were done on a four-track TIAC in my living room. I didn't even have a mixer. All you had with the TIAC was a little four-channel uh, passive. It was a mixer, but it didn't do anything. You know, it just sort of cut the treble or boosted the bass a little bit and had four faders on it. So I had to make sure that the sounds went onto tape exactly, you know, the same way I was going to hear them when they played back. So it meant getting the sounds going into the back of the machine and uh, just making sure the sounds were right before. And then I'd have to bounce between, for example, my white bicycle's got a load of backwards guitar on it. Yeah. And I had to, um, basically, I recorded the Tomorrow version, turned it back to front and listened to what Steve Howe had been playing. Uh, no, write it out in notation uh, because th th that was the only way I could copy it. And then just pray that I got it all right. But it, actually, it did work quite well. I was quite happy with how that turned out. But it was, like I say, very, very primitive. Even though they're studio experiments, I, I, I smile when I listen to them because I do the same thing. It's just us musicians just yeah, exactly. testing ourselves. You know, I think I, I've, I've actually, because I've done so many of these, and the remold series as well. And I got, you know, the eight track tape recorded, the little Fostex and, and more recently with Radar. Why am I doing this? Why, what is it that's compelling me to do this? And I think it's because not being a songwriter, uh, you know, as a musician, I need to perform somehow. I need to somehow compensate for not being a songwriter exactly. by attempting to uh, regurgitate somebody else's work so that I convince myself that it's a creation I don't know it's, it, but that, it's that sounds kind of spot on I think if I were you know analyzing myself on my couch here I'd probably say yes yeah, so you're a you're a bit of a closet narcissist you mate you need to pull yourself together and learn how to write songs but anyway, it was a lot of fun. I don't regret doing it. It's a really great way of passing the time. So now I'll, I'll ask a kind of a big existential question. What do the Beatles mean to you? Well, as I said, they discovered me at age 10. So that meant that right through my school years and growing up into adolescence and even to, you know, as a, as a young man, they were always there and I could probably blame them for my lack of academic uh, status because I'm, I was a hopeless student at school. I left with nothing. I think I had three O levels or something very good. I had no interest in learning. All I wanted to do was learn how to be a pop musician, how to get a job in the industry, how to be in a band, how to play guitar, be a better guitarist and um, just, just make a living making music uh and it's, so you uh, want to be a rock and roll star yeah yeah there you go exactly listen now that. to what i say yes the birds again very very influential great songs and fantastic vocal harmonies in the early band in the early lineup with crosby and uh and uh who's the guy with the tambourine <laughs> i forget his name gene gene, gene clark gene clark great songwriter They're, he was the best songwriter in the band and they lost him yeah and it's a shame i mean but anyway no matter what happened with the birds if you have roger mcguinn it's still going to be the birds of course as he, he's made sure of that yeah why do you think the beatles still matter uh for the same reason that Mozart and J.S. Bach and Tchaikovsky and all those classical composers still matter. Their music still exists. It's great music. You can't forget it. It's uh, It hooks you in. It'll, it'll always be there. Long after you and I have gone, 
it'll always be there all those songs well not all of them a lot of them will be uh, you know swept into the uh, well they, they, they won't be the, it's, the hits will always yeah. be there um as is, is true with with most with most musical endeavors it's people will always remember the hits but that that music isn't going and isn't going to die it just isn't it can't do i mean look it's, it's going to be 60 years in september since the first issue and it's still as vibrant as lively as life-affirming as it ever was and the fact that you're 19 years old you've picked up on it without any help from anybody you didn't have to you know it probably found you in the same way that it found me it's just if you're if you're tuned in you're gonna you're gonna be taken taken in you're gonna be swept up with it there's no escape all right i think i found a way to phrase that other question how have the Beatles influenced your musical sensibilities? Well, because I would say they've set an impossibly high standard in terms of artistic endeavour. There's like, um, how do you, you... It never occurs to you that you're ever going to cut the Beatles. You know, you're not going to get... You're not ever going to do anything better than they've done. Maybe... Yes, of course. There are way far, far better musicians as technicians and players, you know, around. But just having that um, the magnetism of, of the noise they could make with their voices and their instruments and the melody, the sense of melody, it's it's just, uh, I mean, yes, they've even written some some less than brilliant melodies. Uh, mainly after the Beatles broke up. I think they probably, you know, when they were young and vibrant, that was when the best stuff happened. It's, it's with all of us, really. It's when we start to get, you know, a little bit jaded and old and mature. That's the other thing. Once you start getting mature, all that joyful, the joy of youth kind of is 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 sort of frittered away slightly. Um, it's... Yeah, they they set an impossible. The, the bar is too high. You're never going to get over the bar. I, I can they hear still continue to a lot of, of traces of uh, George Harrison's playing in your playing on some of those XTC records, like mm-hmm. um, God King for a Day. Just actually, I need I need to ask you about that the guitars on that song because I can't figure out what the fuck is going on. Are there backwards guitars and what what? No, no the um, the main riff. Yeah. I think that's in a special tuning. Colin Molding came up with that, and uh, he, he I know he'd written the song in an odd tuning, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I'm not quite sure how he tuned the guitar. Um, the guitar chords. I'm playing these sort of backbeat dang dying the chimey things mm-hmm. and uh something I, sounds reversed yes that's right no there's a reverse delay on andy's guitar on the main tune it sort of sounds yeah. okay like so it's tumbling re- over itself so it's a reverse delay yes okay that i makes think lo- what happened was they uh i dare say what probably happened was the tape was turned upside down uh, fed through a delay, was copied onto a separate track, and then that was uh, then turned the tape back. I, I can't remember because it's such a long time ago, and I wasn't there for all of the mixes. But I imagine that might have been what happened. Either that, or Andy had something. Uh, he he had some very primitive effects. He had a little boss uh, delay unit. It was. It must have cost him twenty five pounds. He never. He never bought any gear. But he sometimes he put his hand in his pocket and bought this little thing. I think it had a chorus on it, a fuzz box, compressor, and a delay, and maybe a reverb as well. I can't remember the model number, but it was cheap. And um, so it's quite possible that he 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 played this this little riff through that box. I can't. I, I honestly can't remember. I, I appreciate the insight, because now tonight, I'm going to try and figure out... 
I'm going to try and record that to see if I can get it to sound like that. Yeah, okay. Because I can't oh, I can't write songs, but I need to prove to myself that I'm good as well. Yeah, ah, there you go. But I think another thing to remember is that uh, there was a capo, I think, on the second or third fret. So you might, because uh, I think there was not only an odd tuning, because I think it involved some open strings, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I do remember there was a capo on them, but I couldn't tell you which fret it was. I'll figure it out. So you've got I'm, a lot of stuff. I'm scrappy. <laughs> I have a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing, isn't it? Because the, the, going back to my remolds, it was something to do while I was waiting for the other guys to, to write the next album. Yeah. Uh, or, or if we were on strike or whatever it was, for any reason we weren't making a record or rehearsing or whatever it was. I had to find stuff to do. And uh, that, that occupied quite a lot of my spare time. Now we get to my favorite part of the show, and I'm very interested to hear what your answers are going to be. I call them the quickfire questions, which is um, a bit misleading because the, the questions are quick, but the answers are almost always not. What is your favorite Beatles song? Now, that's an unfair question. How could I just pick one? And I've been thinking about this. They all, it's just, oh my goodness me. Well, I'd say, not just the, because it isn't just the song, it's the sound of the record. That, that's a big part of it as well, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I'm going to say, we can work it out. Because I still remember hearing that for the first time. That song and still sends shivers down my spine. Oh my goodness, With that harmonium. It? Yes. And it's it's just exactly the same. It's, it's like a song of two halves that are identical. Yeah. There's not much else happens. It's the harmonium in the bridge section. And that lovely, just the quality of his voice, the acoustic guitar, and and just the sort of gentle way it's delivered. Yeah. And the lyric, everything is perfect with that. I um, that I remember when I got the the red album the the 62 to 66 and I was listening mm -hmm. to it on my little CD player that song stuck out to me even at age 8 as there's just something special going on yeah. here that whole rubber song period is very very magic i can remember once um listening to the by, by the time yes by 65 i think i'd discovered pirate radio because the pirate ships were operating yeah. and so we were getting a bit more radio in even though it was dodgy reception so and a little bit of the old radio caroline radio love exactly. radio. yes yes and i remember one of them had an advanced pressing of rubber soul and the first thing they played was michelle and i can remember just being taken somewhere hearing this for the first time i go how much better are these guys going to get this is the most amazing thing i've ever heard it's such a lovely lovely song and the way it's the tuning and the how did this fellow come up with this amazing tune and with these great great it's just a perfect love song um so you know they're just sort of it's like when you hear the stuff for the very very first time and and it makes that deep an impression it never lets you go you know it's, it's do you ever wish you could go back in time and uh listen to those songs for the first time all over again well it's it, it's still a joy listening to them for the 800th time i still find myself and that's just this month. yeah exactly that's just this month so, but there's another one of John Lennon's, one of my favourite John Lennon songs is um, I'll Be Back, the last song on Hard Day's Night. I just, there's something fucking amazing about that. Just because it's so, it's not full on. It's just a nice, yeah, emotional little story about, you know, uh, lost love and regret and everything. But And it just, it just takes you takes you away from the hard day's night thing. There, there's something a little freaky about that song to me because if you listen to you know the beatles albums back to back you have i'll be back and then it's immediately followed by a song that kind of sonically sounds similar no reply is the first oh, yes. track off of beatles for sale so those i consider them like part one and part two 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And at the, um, the Beatles for Sale album, I think maybe that was the time. I'm wondering what that that record to me. There was a change of sound, a slight change of sound in the recording of that record. It sort of everything didn't sound quite as had the same kind of attack. It was a, it was a, a lot more mid rangey. Yeah, I won't say a lot blurry. gentler. Yeah, yeah, a gentler. Not gentler as sort of... brash and no, abrasive. Not as, as, as exciting. Not as exciting. Yeah, it's like they're starting it's to figure out how to mix pop music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I must go back and uh, read the a Brian Keyes book, uh, Recording the Beatles, which is this huge, I don't think you've ever seen it. I, I've seen it, and I've seen it on eBay, and now it's $800, and <laughs> then... <sighs> it's worth every cent, uh, yeah. trust me. It's the most fantastic... I, I, I've got the Mark Lewis and Recording Sessions book. Yeah. I can live with that. Okay, fair enough. Well, Mark does a brilliant job, yeah. and I'm still waiting for part two of his... Yeah. Uh, oh, his uh, you and me both. Although yeah. I, I avoided mentioning part two to him when I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago for the show. I think he must be really fed up with people asking about it. Yep. <laughs> so so been to, has he been on this show? Has yes, he, he has. Um, right, well done. Thank you. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a very, very knowledgeable, very nice man. I've, I've, I've met him a few times. So you kind of alluded to earlier when you're talking about uh, the Beatles and how they'll be you know, the songs will carry forward, but some of them won't. I'm going to kind of hone in on that. What is your least favorite Beatles song? My least favorite Beatles song never actually made it onto record. Okay. I, th- I, I think a... I can guess. <laughs> Do you want me to guess want... or shall... Go on then. Yeah, go on then. You have a guess and I'll tell you. What's the new Mary Jane? Oh, no, no. No, that's all right. That's oh. a bit of fun. Yeah, no. The worst one for me, I'm sorry to say, is uh, If You've Got Troubles. Really? Have you heard If You've Got Troubles? Yeah. That's Anthology now, 2, I believe. Yes, it's on one of the anthologies. And it was written for Ringo. And I think had Ringo written it, I would have been a lot more forgiving. But the fact that it's a Lennon-McCartney song and they had the nerve to inflect that on their drummer... I just thought, what are they think? They can't possibly be serious. What are they? Are they just taking the piss out of their mate? I, I, it's just. I I always get that song kind of confused with uh was it the Fortunes who had that song? If you've got or oh you've got your troubles. You, you, you've got your troubles. Yeah, I no, that's mine. a good song. I yeah. I kind of get those two a little mixed up in my head. Yes, except no, one's good. Exactly. One was a hit, the other isn't. Yeah. But the other one that, if it, if not for if you've got troubles, then I would have to say what goes on, because that's again. Uh, I know Ringo had it. He gets a co-write on that, and it's probably not really fair to be, you know, pointing up Ringo's songs as, as being bad because he was a great personality and a really underrated drummer. I loved it. I always. I won't have yeah. it that he was a rubbish drummer. Oh, he was, he was brilliant. a fantastic drummer. Yeah. But uh, as a singer, not so much. He has his charm. Yeah. He's not as good as John Paul or George, but, you know, I can handle one song per album. (laughs) And And a pinch. So, the kind of uh, flip side to that question, what is your favorite Beatle album? A Hard Day's Night. Because that is... John Lennon at his most powerfully brilliant. Yes, there's McCartney stuff on there, but really that's Lennon's album. That whole thing, he never got better than what he did with that record, in my opinion, because I still, I just, I put it on and I leave it on and I turn it over, I play the second side and it just leaves me feeling refreshed. And And then you flip that over. And play, play it all one. over again. Yeah, it's just well that that the whole year of nineteen sixty four for the Beatles with the movie as well, which was you know my favourite movie of all time. I'm sorry to have to say it, but it is. And um, how to clear this bridge open? <laughs> it's just uh, yeah, no, that whole year of sixty four. 
um, but how old was I? Well, I mean, that see, that's the other thing. I was uh, 11 years old, wasn't I? And um, very, very impressionable. The Beatles were my heroes and still are. I think on, on that album, there's a song, it, it's not my favorite Beatles song, but it's up there. But it, it to me, feels like the most Beatles-y song they ever did. And that's uh, Tell Me Why. Yes. What a... It's just a, a blast of emotional energy. Those harmonies. Just, yes. Just, just, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did an interview of the, uh, a local radio station about five years ago and they asked me, um, oh, just pick a Beatles song. What would you like to hear? We're going to play a Beatles song. And I said straight away, tell me why. And uh, but then of course they they had the reconstituted digitized version of it. I thought, oh, this doesn't sound as good as I remember it. Doesn't sound as good as my mono pressing from my my original album. But to, to look at the artwork on that record. Could there be a better sleeve? It's just you know all the little heads and the, just, just the way it was designed. And then on the back you flip it over and they've got the list of the songs and who's singing. And, uh, and they all look so cool. Um, is that your favourite Beatle album, Sleeve? That, yeah, I think it probably is, yeah. I, I think Revolver probably is my favourite one, because I, I'm glad to see, you know, Klaus Foreman just had a, a birthday, didn't he? And people were just on Facebook throwing up the, the Revolver sleeve as his uh, crowning achievement which is well-deserved. I remember seeing that when it came out and thinking, oh, God, these guys... I, I, I have to disagree, and I, I have to say uh, uh, the Mighty Garvey album by Manfred Mann is his crowning achievement. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I've not seen that. I don't have the album. I don't have a copy of it. But I do have the one he did for the Bee Gees. First. Uh, Bee Gees first. Which they just did a little bit of uh, painting around a photograph. It wasn't that elaborate. So, and kind of, I this is a bit predictable. Flip side to that question: What is your least favorite Beatle album? Well, they're all good, uh, but I suppose if I had to choose one, it would probably be Let It Be. Not because it's a bad album, because there isn't as much joy on it as there is on all the others. That's all. I, I like to joke on the show it, that uh, there's correct, there's secret correct answers for the favorite album and the least favorite album, and the secret answer for favorite tends to be Revolver, but the secret answer for least favorite is almost always Let It Be. Yeah, yeah, I can't think of one unless you count some um, the Hey Jude album, which is just a little sort of compilation. Yeah, that was just something just thrown a, together in America. Yeah, it was just a way of issuing some stuff on stereo for the first time, wasn't it? I think that yeah. was all it was. Yeah. And uh, this this has been a blast, Dave. Well, it's been a pleasure. I mean, it's great to hear share some Beatle love. Is there anything you'd like uh, the listeners out there to to know? Anything to promote? Nothing to promote, no. No, nothing to promote. Um, actually, I have a... Well, again, I've, I've done... I do a lot of these uh, podcasts. I'm really from people... It's when albums come out, mm -hmm. they're uh, being reissued for whatever reason, or there's an anniversary. For example, we had the um, English Settlement 40th anniversary in February. And now uh, I think Andy has just issued a new pressing of the Mummer album. I, um, I was going to say, if, if you don't have anything to promote, I, I urge the listeners out there, go pick up the new uh, reissue of Mummer, and later this year, pick up the new reissue of White Music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, worth listening to, definitely. Yeah, although it's it's not as good as Mummer, because Dave's not on it. <laughs> oh, dear. And with that, Dave, thank you very much for coming on the show. And well, it's uh, been a pleasure. to all the listeners out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Keep Beatle listening. Just keep listening to them Beatles. Because they're the perfect tonic. Mm -hmm.
Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fuller. This has been a Showtown production. Hi, I'm Ethan Alexanian, founder, president, and CEO of Fans on the Run. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. I certainly have. Oh, what a good time it's been. The show is also streaming on all of the major podcast distribution platforms like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you're listening on any of those, please follow or subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far, please leave a review. We're on Facebook at Fans on the Run Podcast, Twitter at Fans on the Run Pod, and on Instagram at Fans on the Run Podcast, where I post all the graphics for the show, including this episode's graphic. If you have any requests of people you'd like to see on the show, questions, comments about an episode, or anything else, you can reach me at Fans on the Run Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful evening.